Good evening. Welcome. Is that better back there? Good morning. That too. Renee. Oh, never mind. Have it right here. Uh, is the microphone speaker better back there, Bruce? Yeah. Well, he responded, so that means something. <clears throat> yeah, we have to use a karaoke machine. Um, the system here is not working for whatever reason. We have the call to worship. Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation. Let us stand and sing Psalm 107, Psalm 107a. No. One through five is sufficient.
gracious God, we call upon you, we call upon the Spirit of Truth to be here with us, Lord, in special measure, that we may be guided unto more of your truth and encouragement, that you are with us, Lord, and you are guiding direct us through your word. We pray these things you taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 20. Inside the bulletin. Let us read it responsively. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob defend you. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. So this is a good prayer for all of us, that God would indeed be gracious towards us, as he has promised in his word, and that we would be encouraged thereby. Let us pray. We certainly, God, above, as we come before you, our Heavenly Father, have our sins, distractions and selfishness and other violations of your holy word in our lives. We struggle with them, God. We struggle to see them, understand them at times, and other times, Lord, to fight against them and cast them off. But in all these things, God, we acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge our violations of your holy law before you, God. Not just this day, Lord, we pray, but also throughout the rest of the week, as sins come upon us, that you would forgive us, as you promised in the gospel, that you have indeed covered our sins, will continue to cover our sins, and Christ Jesus is our advocate now before you pleading for our continued preservation in grace. We thank you for your goodness, God above, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Toward us, towards the many blessings you've given us, towards the simple and mundane things in life that we take for granted, but Lord, show your goodness towards us. They have shoes on our feet and clothes on our back, and Lord, food for our stomach. 
We thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards our family and our friends and guiding and protecting them and providing for them and your wonderful providence for your church and for our community and for our churches, Lord. As we going through the church history and Sunday school class, God, may it continue to encourage us that you indeed watch over your church, protect her throughout all the ages as you have promised in your word. And we praise you for that, God. May we not take it again for granted, but ever, Lord, be mindful of your goodness towards us and many things in our life. We pray for our nation, God. We ask the spirit of truth and holiness to continue to purge our churches to more holiness and godlikeness in our lives and for our, church, our, our nation, God, that we would have lawful laws and wicked laws would be ignored or cast down, God, above. We pray, Lord, in particular of the worsening in many regards of our national health. Uh, we pray, God, for the protection of our women from the draft, which is being pushed now through Congress. And, Lord, ultimately, if we ever go to war, which it seems like we are war-thirsty over the many decades I've been alive, uh, that our women would be there as well. We pray that you're protecting them, certainly uh, the unbelieving women, but especially our children of the covenant. And we ask, God, that you would continue uh, to give us freedom as Christians, as churches in this nation. And we think in particular, uh, again, many uh, laws that are now being challenged in the states, standing up in many regards for some things that are good, and protecting of the unborn, for example, Lord. And that will continue. And also we think in uh, recently, Lord, we pray for those struggling with the restrictions that have now been formally imposed that will come upon us in January, Lord, for businesses over 100, and uh, the problems that have arisen from that, God, uh, from uh, the COVID and the like that we are still finding ourselves under, Lord, that we pray for those businesses, especially for Christians who are stuck and have little recourse. They don't have the power to push back through the courts. It costs lots of money and the like, although it is being pushed by several states, God. And so we pray again for our brothers and sisters who are stuck and their conscience is determined, Lord, to go one way and not another, Lord, and the state doesn't care. Our God and Savior, so we pray that these restrictions and other um Problems that have come upon our economy, Lord, would be lessened and we can go back to normal quickly, God. We ask, Lord, in particular for the economy, with the prices that are increasing, with access to goods that are threatened, and we're reading more reports of these things with some of the ports that are backlogged and on historical levels, that these things would be fixed and changed, God, and there would be people who would care about these things and care to look into these matters and do what they can to exercise their power for the good of the nation and the common good, we pray. And we ask, Lord, again for Christians, for their protection, for their employment, God, that they would find good employment and worker employers, companies uh, that care enough for their workers to give them access to a living wage if they've uh, proven themselves and work hard to that end, God, instead of, uh, Lord, uh, dangling it and never giving it or giving good access to entry-level people and no one else can ad- advance thereafter, Lord. It's uh, not very good for families for the poor and the middle class in particular, God. And so we ask that you would move the hearts of those with access and power and the rich among us, although certainly not all of them, but it seems to be the vast majority of them, uh, to have hearts that are desirous to understand the plight that the poor and the middle class are finding themselves more and more. And we ask, God, that you would help us as Christians, to live day by day for your glory alone, to seek out opportunities to obey your word, and, Lord, to live in light of your wonderful grace towards us, to live the Christian life, God. May the preaching this morning, and may, Lord, our continued meditation upon your word throughout the week be driven towards that end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In your name alone we pray.
Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Praise you indeed, God, for the many blessings and the goodness that you've bestowed upon us and the opportunity to give back of that goodness to your work, Lord, through the church and the kingdom of God. We pray that it would be used and magnified for your glory. Amen. Let us sing Psalm 145. 145. through four. I will exalt you.
may be seated. We have the reading of the Ten Commandments, which is in a green sheet inside the hymnal, unless it's taken out of my hymnal. It was there last week. It's a slightly different translation. Uh, I mean, it's whatever the new, the whatever one we use. I don't remember NKJV. We had, a, if you recall, in this one. I don't know what translation it was. The session looked at. We're like the words are a little different here and there. And when we got the new Trinity Psalters, we're like, okay, we should probably stick with something because it's not in the Trinity Psalter. There's no Ten Commandments, and so we got this. Um, and we don't want to confuse each other by saying slightly different words. It could be a dissident. So, okay, thank you for this. And whoever took it last time or I dropped it somewhere, I'll have to find it. Let us say it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 23. Thank you. 
I'm sorry, it's a typo. Verse 31. Verse 31, let us listen attentively to the word of God. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let us pray. With this summary fashion, God, that we're given through the mouth, uh, through the pen of Paul, we are shown the goal of the Christian life. He applied it to the particular matter, God, of dealing with weaker and stronger brethren and what to eat and things offered to idols. But whatever we do, God, when given freedom, we ought to do to your glory. We ask, God, that we continue to have such a heart towards you and to be encouraged that this is the Christian life, to give glory and to enjoy you forever. In your name alone we pray. Amen. What does it mean to give glory to God? When I was a child, that was never clear to me. I grew up uh, learning many good things in my church. I don't remember specifically how it was defined, what it meant to glorify God. The word became a blank, a placeholder, meaning whatever the speaker wanted to mean, it seems to me, in retrospect. Sometimes it was what you did. You want to glorify God? Read my best-selling book. Sometimes it's what you didn't do. You want to glorify God? Don't read those other books. But is that necessarily glorifying God? What does it even mean? It's the word that gives us the English doxology. The word means radiance, brightness, or splendor, like for the sun. Specifically, when used for God, it means his majesty, his honor, and praise. The worthiness of who he is. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is literally heavy. The word is heavy, that which is heavy. It's metaphorical then, with respect to God, to mean to give due weight, right? To give due weight to who he is and honor and measure. Hence, honor, praise, or glory of God. It means to make him our highest good. He is to give all the honor and glory and praise. But what does it mean to give due weight to God? to due consideration of who he is, to give him due consideration and honor. And we know one way to express that, and that's his law. If you respect God, if he is first in your life, and you want to glorify him, then you do this, do that through obeying his will. It's as simple as that. Specifically, his law. Not exclusively, but specifically here is what I want to focus on in this day and age of what it seems to be is rampant antinomianism. I know we hear about rented legalism. Uh, it's apparently a fun thing to beat up conservatives. Uh, ex, you have ex-conservatives become moderates in Christian circles. They say, you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist home. I don't know what that means anymore. I don't know what that means when you find out the numbers of people who are completely ignorant of God's law and church, uh, people who sleep around and do other things in the churches and conservative churches. It seems to me antinomianism or that which is against God's law is a bigger problem, especially in society. We certainly see it. They're running crazy, like crazy men down a cliff. It's obeying God's law in particular that we see this. Obeying the law shows our heart. And Paul ties glory and the law explicitly in Romans 3.23. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. And to sin is what? To break or violate God's law. Violating God's law is to fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, not to fall short of the glory of God is what? To obey his law. It's the inversion of that. As Christians, of course, we feel as though we have not obeyed enough. We have not glorified God enough. We feel our sins, and that is certainly true. If we're not Christians, but we are Christians. And so the cosmic judge of the universe is now our Heavenly Father. 
and our fragile obedience to God is acceptable through the merit of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. It's not for our justification, but it's for our sanctification in particular, right? We don't obey enough to be more justified. That never changes. We are justified. It's a legal declaration. But our sanctification grows. And that sanctification's chief end is glorify God. And we do that through obedience. And we can obey because we have the Spirit of God. Glorifying God means growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Glorifying God must begin with our heart of our faith and our love towards God. It's in it's inward first, of course. It's what we believe. It's what we're inclined towards. And from there it flows into our actions of our hands and our feet and thought, word, and deed. Glorifying God, in other words, isn't just having an emotional response to singing songs, although you may do that while you're glorifying God, and I, I'm happy for that. But that is not the replacement for what comes down to the concrete calling of obedience and sanctification. It's not just a placeholder. It's not just an abstraction. It has concrete feet, and it's following God's word, in particular his law. And we can because we have the Spirit of God. And so I have three points here to unpack the broader view. Remember, this is our series, and we're going to wind down the last few sermons, of Christianity, of what people need to hear about Christianity. I would say the basics of Christian faith, but we need to know the whole entirety of the Bible. It's not like, well, pastor covered ten points, that's all I need to know to be a Christian. No, we need to know the Bible. And I'm highlighting things that are, I think, missing, or we need encouragement uh, towards, or reinforcement of these truths, especially with our society and the bad influence around us. And this is one of them. To glorify God. The Christian life is dot, dot, dot. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And what does that mean in the concrete? It's related to the question of, what does it mean to love God? Well, I love God. And you're running around beating up your brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think someone wrote about that. Oh, that's right, James. <laughs> so you can't just use this abstraction or as an excuse I don't think you guys are, but I'm, I'm speaking in general what part of the concern is I'm trying to re- protect us from this sloppy way of thinking or falling into. I fell into this as well. Glorify God, loving God, it's concrete. It's in your heart, of course. You may not be able to express it in your actions. I mean, you're, you're in jail. Like, Paul, what, how much good works can you do? Not much. You just sit there and pray. And God's... God limited you in his providence. He limited you, and you accept that, but you can still worship him in your heart. That's my point. Glorify him in your heart and love him in your heart. That's a bare minimal. First point, glorify God by taking care of the family. We glorify God by taking care of the family. The Christian life is to glorify God by taking care of the family. In 1 Timothy 5.4, you're all familiar with that passage. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to repay piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. And if it's good and acceptable before God, it's that which glorifies Him, isn't it? We have to show piety in the home. The family, I'll remind us, predates the church. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a serious, serious charge. The family predates the church. You had the family and Adam and Eve. They were supposed to have kids. But they sinned. 
and there was the fall. And then God brought about deliverance, and that means he created the body of Christ called the church. Anybody who believes in the Messiah to come, or in our case, the Messiah who has already come, the, the difference is just time because we're time-bound, but God is not time-bound in his grace. That's the church. That's where the church of God is. Even if it isn't formally structured because wars and pestilence and sin and destruction can break up a, you know, an organized church. But it's still a church of God. As long as there are people on earth who call upon the name of the Lord, as we read in Genesis 4, there is the church. Now, how did Adam and Eve glorify God before the fall? How did they glorify God before the fall? With Christian music? I didn't have anything yet. <laughs> Maybe they made up some tunes on their own eventually. But we know Jubal did that, right? The father of musical instruments. That came later. They did it by following God's will. Remember, the Ten Commandments predates the giving of, by Moses. It's not like nobody knew God's requirements. It's written on their hearts, although they try to hide it and sin effaces it. That's true, but it's still there, Romans 1.18. They had a family. They took care of the family. That's how they glorified God. They took care of each other. He led, she submitted, they worked together in the garden, or they were supposed to. It looks like they fell on the same day that they were created. We don't know for a fact. Which is to remind us that church does not replace the family. Sometimes in Christian circles, we're like, glorify God. That means you've got to be in the church. That means you've got to have the sacraments. Yes, those things are true. But it doesn't exclude the fact you glorify God by taking care of your family. <laughs> You're not more holy by ignoring your family and going to church, as though the church replaces the family. It does not. It cannot. We're finding out, unfortunately, more and more in our society as kids grow up without their parents. It messes the kids up. We can do what we can, of course, as a church to help them, but we cannot replace them. We don't live with them. We don't see their sins every day. You can and you do, and therefore you can glorify God by helping your children, helping one another, helping your family members, helping your grandparents, whatever else the case is. You are called to do that. Family is important. To glorify God and your family is nothing fancy. It's no more than children submitting to their parents, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, leading their children, and, of course, the specificity, as we read here, of taking care of family members, even specifically grandchildren. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to repay piety at home. That is, let the grandchildren and children take care of their mother grandmother. That comes first, to repay their parents. Repay, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, because the parents took care of you and you couldn't do anything. <laughs> and so you have this reciprocal relationship that's a form of glorifying God. This listing here and elsewhere by Paul and other writers in the New Testament, we talk about family life, you think he's saying, well, doing all this stuff has nothing to do with glorifying God. It's not relevant. Of course, of course it is. It's all relevant. It's God's will. It's how you show honor and give due weight to God. God says, take care of your family. You're like, ah, whatever. I'd rather take care of the stranger. God says, take care of the stranger, right? I'll take care of the stranger. And so they have a form of korban today. When I can give these things to take care of my family, I'd rather give it to strangers. You see that in politics. Unfortunately, you see it in the church and diaconate. It's a form of korban, isn't it? Right? That's that word you read there in the, in the Gospels. It means a gift. It's a gift to God. See how pious and holy I am? And, the, and his parents are like, dude, where's my money? I'm out in the street. You know, I, I need help. 
Take care of the family. That's how you show glory to God. Financially, educationally, materially, emotionally. It's your calling. It's hard because you see the warts all over their face. When you're up close, you live with a family member, don't you? You live with your family, your grandparents live near them. The warts of sin, of course. The warts of clashing personalities. Families are supposed to take care of their own. As I read there, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents. Take care of them in their old age to repay them for the years they took care of you. This is, you're going to learn this word like you learn larger catechism question 99, storge. We need a better word in English. Natural affection. That's two words. Towards those close to you, especially your family. That's what, seven words. <laughs> Sorry. We've all heard of agape. You've all heard of uh, phileo and the other Greek words, but no one's ever heard of storge. It's there. It's actually written by C.S. Lewis, his book, The Four Loves. He talks about storge in the beginning. Kind of interesting. Yeah, it's not talked about much. It's hard to actually find a lot of interesting stuff about it, but you've heard it. You know it's there in the Bible, or rather the opposite, without natural affection. First uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 31 and 32, the long list of sins. One of those is not having natural affections. What towards those close to you, especially your family. I love strangers more than my family. Oops, that's called a storge. That's a sin. That's a serious sin. Families provide for their own, right? If any does not provide for his own, especially those of the household. So you have those who are close to him, and especially, he emphasizes the household, which could include servants, whoever's under your roof and your responsibility even. Maybe not even under your roof. In this case, grandparents may not be under your roof. That doesn't mean they're not your responsibility, right? Oh, down the street, sorry. I'll take care of them. Of course not. So this is a, a, a rather broad circle here, it seems to me. You provide for your own your family, your children, and everything else. This is what you're called to do, brothers and sisters. This is how you glorify God. Nothing fancy, obviously not public, because many things you do in the family take care of your family, your children, your parents, your husband, your wife, your grandparents, your uncles, your nieces, your grandchildren. It's done privately, isn't it? And that's fine, and you're glorifying God privately. That's fine. You don't need to shout it from the rooftops. With much prayer and praise, and it all begins in the heart, and it flows through the hands. Do it with an honest and loving heart, as I know you have done and continue to do in a day and age that believes in a storge and hates storge, hates their people close to them. The Christian life is the second point, to glorify God by submitting to the state. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, I know. Romans 13, we all know that passage. To glorify God through submission. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. The fifth commandment is the basis of governmental rule. And the government is there to do good. That's how Paul describes it in Romans 13. It's interesting, he uses... Abstractions. He doesn't talk about a particular man by name or things like that. He just says rulers and language like that. He says, for he is God's minister or servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And obviously, not every magistrate does that. Not every ruler does that, does he? So is Paul just not knowing what he's talking about? No, he's talking about... Ideally, this is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to take the sword of justice and execute it. Whether he does it or not is not what Paul's talking about here. That's another matter. He's saying your calling as a Christian uh, in, in general is to submit 
to the powers that be because that is their job to punish and to reward, to preserve order and to protect us. At least they're supposed to. We're supposed to submit, brothers and sisters, and I mentioned that, of course, we went through First Peter chapter 3, which talks a lot about the submission and our call to uh, obey and follow, in particular under the hard strictures of not being able to push back. You're a slave, you have little rights, although we found out they had a little more rights than we realized, but they don't have a lot of power. It's not like you can wake up one day and just stop being a slave. Even back then you couldn't do that. And it's not like today you can walk off your job. You still have to work, you still have to find another job to replace it. It's not that easy. And so when you're Restricted, it's very hard to submit, but you know you have to. And we're told to even submit with the right attitude, of course. Even Paul admitted his mistake when he spoke out against the high priest in the book of Acts, remember? So I didn't realize that. The Bible tells me not to speak evil of my rulers. This is the Pharisees, right? I mean, that name itself is synonymous with bad rulers in today's Christian circles, as it should be. You're supposed to submit to federal Congress, to the Supreme Court and the presidents, to state Congress and courts and governors, to mayors, the police and sheriffs and judges, board members of the HOA and neighborhood rules. We have some of that. We've got to change our light bulbs in our neighborhood because they're too bright. Although it was established by our builder, our builder didn't know their own rules. <laughs> they gave us too bright of a light bulb outside. We're supposed to have a dark sky, I think it's called, because we have no... Um, corner street lights, those known lights in the streets, so bears can roam freely. Submit to laws of all kinds, not just because they're convenient. Speeding laws, are, you know, driving laws are not convenient to me sometimes. Rules and administration, ordinances, whatever they're called, we are called to submit to them. Even Christ said, "What carry the load of the Roman soldier an extra mile, and your jaw drops." What? That's what Christ said. Now, again, under those circumstances, they're under. No, it's, there's no really appeal for them. There's no court appeal and things like that. We have that. We can exercise that to be sure. We've talked about that, uh, but I'm not going to highlight that here. The time to resist. There is a time to, to resist, but often there's little we can do, and we should submit short of sin. It's not a sin to follow a speed limit sign. It is a sin to run people over. <laughs> so. We know the distinction. So we glorify God by obeying and submitting to those around us. And we can even glorify God, of course, as we know, through resisting. If we're called to sin, we say no. If we're called to participate in damage to other people, we say no. And we follow the apostles. We said in Acts 5.29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and told the Jewish leadership, We ought to obey God rather than man. Not in all situations, as I pointed out, as even they, they submitted. They submitted. Christ said, listen to the Pharisees. They sit in the seat of Moses. But when they tell us to go against God explicitly, they tell us to violate his law and the like, we glorify him through resisting, not submitting. But in general, we do submit and often do submit, and the world sees that we are taking authority seriously. This is how we glorify God. And thirdly, the Christian life is to glorify God by loving the church. 1 Corinthians 12. You have that whole chapter there. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to those dumb idols. 
There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. Differences of ministry, but the same Lord. And God has given us all together. Verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink in that one Spirit. And so he continues on here to encourage them to take the body of Christ seriously and not think that they don't need the rest of us, which is an expression of love, isn't it? Is it to show love by saying, I'm an I, I don't need the rest of the body? That's the illustration he uses. Of course you need the rest of the body, Paul says. That's arrogant. Be humble. Show love to your brother is what he's saying in practice by recognizing, sure, you have the eye, you can see things, but you still need the rest of the body. You still need the rest of the body. Glorify God by loving the entirety of the church. You glorify God in, in, uh, in one way, of course, in the church setting, through worship, through the public means of grace, right? Where we focus exclusively on him on the Lord's day. Take the opportunity to praise his name, to hear his word, to pray before him, to meditate upon him, to use the public means of grace, the sacraments, prayer and preaching in particular, to learn and grow thereby. This is how we show love to God and glorify him and through the church because we come together as a body. When you see the arguments here, he's talking about Christ, but he also talks about one another. In 1 Corinthians 12 here, and also in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, we talk about one bread and one body. I don't, you shouldn't be sowing divisions here because Christ only has one body. Why are you dividing one another? So there's an interplay between the three elements, yourself and one another, and then Christ. Because there's unity. We glorify God by loving the church by loving the worship and being with the saints, because part of worshiping God is being with the saints, if we can, of course. For the great being who created heaven and earth and sustained your house, your, heart, your life, your cars, and everything else, doesn't it seem reasonable to give back some portion of time to him? Hence the Lord's day. And in fact, God could take all our time because he owns all our time. It only requires one day in seven to give him honor and glorify him. Yes, we glorify God by taking care of our families and submitting to the government. But that is indirect insofar as we're not thinking about God when we take care of our family and we take care and submit to our government. But when we come to public worship, we are specifically thinking about God. And thus glorifying him in a more direct and immediate fashion. And God, in his infinite mercy, recognizes that, that we're busy, we have to take care of things in this life, so... It gives us the Lord's Day. And throughout the week, of course, you have prayer time a little bit every day as you are able. So you can think about God and be encouraged by him and read his word. Glorify God, not worship only in the context of being in the body of Christ, but the body of Christ in general as well. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You got the point there? He says it three times. <laughs> love one another. In this list of, in the list of people we honor, family, friends, neighborhoods, communities, county, states, nation, and the world, roughly in that order, believers are now in that list called the church. 
And you're, you have the broad church, the church universal, of course. You have the national church, as we believe as Presbyterians. And we have regional churches and then the local church. And, of course, it's in that order, too, just like you do with yourself. You take care of your family first. You think of them first. You love them more than anybody else. And then your friends and those near you. And further away people are, the less you think about them, the less you have time for them. That's just the nature of what it means to be finite. There's nothing wrong with that. And the same with the church. Now, the church is part of this uh, hierarchy of love. And Romans 12.10, interestingly enough, tells us, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. The brotherly love there is a compound word of phileo. You've heard that, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And storge. (laughs) So he's saying, what you know as brotherly love and natural affections of those close to you, take those attitudes of love and compassion and natural affection, give it to the church, too. That's what he's saying. He assumes the natural to explain the supernatural. Give it to the church. And that's doubly important, again, in the New Testament context, because what? Now you have Jews hanging out with Gentiles. I mean, they were always separate. It's hard for us to think of that way, but they were always separate. I can't think of anything equivalent except in my own experience, which would be like, you know, Americans in the 70s and 60s and the 80s hanging out with Russians, Soviets. No way. No way. That's crazy talk. Hang out with Soviets. That's dangerous. So the Jews wouldn't hang out with the Gentiles. And God told them not to do that, by the way. And that was right and proper. Now it's changed. My point, of course, is psychologically it's hard to overcome that hump, that difficulty. And so you have that emphasis in the New Testament. Love one another. The emphasis isn't love the world. You hear that, unfortunately, too often, in my opinion, in parachurch ministries and even churches. Love the stranger. Love the world. There's a place for that, yes. But it falls so far below what? Love one another. 52 plus times in the New Testament. Love one another. Overcome those old animosities between the Jews and the Gentiles, is what he's saying. Our time and money and resources must take the church in consideration. That's showing love to the church because the world is watching us. How we love one another or we don't love one another. How we pray for one another or how we don't pray for one another. How we help one another or how we don't help one another. Praise be to God. He has been good to us in our church, and we continue to do these things, and I encourage you not to give up in this regard, because the world is watching. If we have love for Christ, we want to glorify God, we will love the church. May God help us to continue to glorify his name by taking care of our families, by submitting to the government, and by loving the church, and above all, no matter what happens to us, by always putting God first in our hearts. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for the encouragement of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to persevere and not be discouraged, God, although it seems at times there's not always fruit in our glorifying you by taking care of our family, submitting to the government, or loving the church, Lord. But may we continue to persevere, nevertheless, because we love you above all. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 379. 379.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Thank you.